Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the May 13th, 2019 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. The world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, but now proudly including the queer and intersex communities in our mission statement. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wendell Jones. Tonight we ask, where's Wayne? Only to find him on the red carpet for the opening of the L.A. LGBT Center's new Anita May Rosenstein campus. To counter all the happiness of Mother's Day yesterday, we revisit Steve Pride's 2002 visit with a daughter who had a very tense relationship with her mother, Christina Crawford. And after the break, in a very special segment we're calling What's Your Story? Our in-studio guest is writer-producer Florian Klein, a.k.a. adult film actor Hans Berlin, who's opening his autobiographical new music in Hollywood. But first, the honesty. And this is our very special sports edition of honesty. Because <laughs> Abby and I are so big on sports. We're <clears throat> such the appropriate people to be talking about this. But it's interesting. It is. It's visiting a world I really know nothing about. So two-time Olympic gold medalist in track and field, Caster Semenya, has been banned again from her sport unless she takes testosterone-suppressing medication. And this is not because she was doping. No. It's because she naturally produces more testosterone than the average woman. And she's got quite a runner's build. I mean, that cannot be denied. But it is her perfectly natural testosterone level. And what is it? The, the International Association of Athletic Federations, the IAAF, says that she must take testosterone suppressors. Now, mind you, Michael Phelps is also a freak of nature, and everybody says... What a blessed boy he is. Right. And, and they so leave it at that. <laughs> they leave it at that. They're, like, satisfied that he's not injecting himself with right. whatever magic ingredients. So the IAAF tells her that she cannot run with women in any event between 400 meters and one mile. But funny enough, she's free to compete with the men in any category. Yeah, that was their little consolation prize. Now, mind you, her medals, her amazingness, and the reason why we are all talking about her is that her sport is 800 meters. Right. So, in other words, she can't compete in her sport. Right. And saying you can compete with the men, I don't even understand that because despite the fact she has a high testosterone level for a woman, she's still a woman. It's a smaller frame. There's muscle mass ratio. I mean, it's a different body entirely. You can't just say, well, you've got high testosterone. Therefore, go run you're with the boys. a man. And just to be clear, women do produce testosterone naturally. Right. There were a lot of rumors about her that she was intersex, mm -hmm. but an intersex could mean anything. And I mean, as far as I know, you know, as much as we like to think if there are boys and there are girls, right. biology does no. not draw such clear lines. And if you're going to divide sports in a binary fashion, <sighs> this, she, she can't really, she's not a man. <laughs> this is, I mean, you know, if she had unusually like mm -hmm. extra toes or something that gave her some ability to run beyond other women, I doubt they'd be saying cut off your toes. This is totally no. about gender norms. Well, and I guess she, she won a gold medal in Doha five days before these regulations kicked in and everybody expected that she would then retire. Retire. Yeah. Gracefully retire. No. And no, she is not doing that. There's some very interesting stuff about this because apparently they started the law mm -hmm. uh, or a new regulation in 2018 that everyone mm -hmm. thinks was clearly designed to target her, yeah. saying that women who tested above this certain level had to take these testosterone-reducing drugs. And so this case, this argument has been going on since 2009 oh. with her. Oh, oh. Oh, yeah. She's been fighting this one, and she's undergone all these humiliating gender checks and body exams and lab tests and everything else. And given that history, I'm fascinated by is that the uh, appeals body, 
that mm -hmm. recently said, no, she still has to take this medication, said, yes, this is discriminatory, but, quote, such discrimination is necessary to preserve dignity of female athletics. And I feel like that dignity got lost yeah. by these bodies. Well, and I have no idea what the actual makeup of the IAAF is, but it sounds like another instance of a bunch of old white men telling women what they're supposed to do with their body. Yeah, totally. I don't know that it's made up of old white men or and I guess or... South Africans really are proud of her, as oh, yeah. they should be. And they're calling this one out as mm -hmm. racism, too, yeah. that this just smacks of European colonial thinking and ideas about what a proper woman should be. And she should right. obviously be a strong, fast right. African woman. Well, and, and plus, she's an outmarried lesbian, too. Oh, yeah, there's that. that I don't think that, that has come into the discussion mm. at all, but it, it is a factor. Yeah. So she's kicking butt, though. She says, if a wall is placed in front of me, I jump it. I am going to keep enjoying my life and live it. I will keep on training and running. To me, impossible is nothing. An inspiration to little girls She's everywhere. my new Shiro. I know. She's delightful. So continuing the sports thing. I know. I can't believe we've talked about sports for this long. I know. Keep it going. Can we do it? We can do it. So Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Issue, something I can tell you I give no thought to at all. Nope. But it is going to feature its first out lesbian model. And? But she's not actually a model professionally. It's uh, Megan, Megan Rapinoe. Rapino. Oh, Rapinoe, sorry. Because I am a lesbian, and I do <laughs> know, have... I have to admit, I do know something about the U.S. women's soccer team. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, come on. But she, she is going to be posing in the swimsuit issue. See, this made me wonder. This is the first time I've ever thought about it. Is the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue sort of a thing lesbians go for? Not in my experience, but I am sure there are many lesbians who are going to run and pick this up and be really, really happy about it. Well, it's like the, the way the Abercrombie and Fitch catalog, although it was pretty transparent about it, but it's so catered to middle-aged gay men. I, I'm very conflicted about this. Yeah. I actually put this up on my Facebook page and on the IMRU Facebook page and kind uh -huh. of said, all right, folks, discuss. I know, because on the one hand, she, she seems very pleased with herself for doing this. She said overtly she's doing this right. to break stereotypes. Right. And she and her girlfriend have actually already posed naked on the cover of ESPN's body issue. I didn't know there was a thing like that. I yeah. didn't either. But, you know, there was a link. There was a picture. So she's not averse to modeling. But, yeah, it is the swimsuit issue, which it, to me seems, next to the Victoria's Secret catalog, one of those big objectifiers. You can go online and see the pictures now. Um, there are like 40 oh, right, pictures yes. of her. You and she, know. She's gone for the very sheer suit. And proudly. She yeah. said, oh yeah, I believe, you know, free the nipple. Free the nipple. Free the nipple. <laughs> and you will There's see Megan Rapinoe's nipple. If yeah. you go look for it, you can find it. But the words that came to mind as I was looking at this is the male gaze. Yes. She actually said in this edition of Sports Illustrated, a lot of people think that the swimsuit edition is just for men to look at. And I'm kind of challenging that. And so I was sort of expecting to see more of a lesbian aesthetic, and I didn't. Well, because she posed with three of her teammates, too. Yeah. Now, those three women, as far as I know, identify as straight, or right. at least they are not out lesbians. Right. And her co-captain, you know, she's captain of the women's soccer team, and her co-captain, Alex Morgan, mm -hmm. was one of the cover women for the issue. Now, Alex Morgan is a much more traditionally feminine looking. Mm -hmm. Alex Rapino, I mean, I would spot her as family a mile away. She's got yeah. the short blonde hair. I mean, she has, and she does have a beautiful athletic oh. body. There's no yeah. question about that. And you can tell the work she's put into it. It's, it's firm and solid. And it looks like she's having fun, yeah. but it was still sort of cheesecakey. 
And, you know, she's wearing right. like the dazzled bathing suits. And it right. just, there was something that just, I thought, okay, in an alternative universe, if someone asked me to do this, and they won't, I'm telling you, they're not going to ask me to do this. <laughs> I would say yes. Yeah. And then I'd say, yeah, but I really want to flip the script on this one. Right. You know, I'd get like a lesbian or trans photographer who has a different understanding of bodies and stuff. I I just sort of feel like she was still kind of shoehorned into the the male gaze. Well, and for something that is marketed and solidly aimed at the straight male audience, I think being an out lesbian is just going to add to the titillation factor, frankly. Yeah, maybe. Because straight men, I remember once having a discussion with my yes. brother years and years and years ago. I wasn't even out to my family yet. And he had encountered a bunch of gay guys at a party that was at my house. And he says, oh, the thought of two men together is so disgusting. Two girls, however. And Thought that was so hot. Let me just share <laughs> a lifelong anecdote with you. For a little while, back in the days when mm-hmm. guys would hit on me and, mm-hmm. you know, if I was sitting by myself, strangely, they're not doing it so much anymore. It's funny that another conversation for another time. I thought, you know what? And, you know, it's not that they were necessarily being obnoxious, but all I have to do is say, well, I'm a lesbian. Mm-hmm. I learned very quickly that that does not even cause a pause. No, no, no. They're just That's sure like, you haven't met the right man yet. Oh, no. That means come on over to my house. We're, you know, I am not telling you I'm a lesbian. I'm actually saying, yes, I'm a lesbian. Please come over, guy. Have your way with me. I mean, <laughs> it was sort of like giving them just a big old yeah. shot of yeah. horniness right there. So, you know, I stopped doing that. Straight men are weird. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all kind of weird. So anyway, yeah. So breaking down stereotypes or catering to the worst of men. I'm not sure what's I, going on here. And I don't want to criticize her. No, because, no. And I think there are a lot of women who will be thrilled to see this because mm-hmm. Sports Illustrated, in that same article, mm-hmm. they were talking about the lawsuit that she is spearheading against the American governing body mm-hmm. of women's athletics for total sexist treatment and discrimination right. and not paying them less and making them play on these awful artificial turfs where the men are, all this stuff. I mean, they were kind of saying all the right stuff in that article and shining a light on that. Does anybody read the article, though? I did. Well, well I know you did. You're the lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> and I care. But it's sort of like saying, oh, yeah, I read Playboy for the articles. My father did. Yeah, that's what they say. I know. And, you know, John Lennon, great Playboy article. Well, and yeah, they actually did have good articles. I really did not know that there was any text in the swimsuit edition. I thought you it was had just, to look. Yeah, well, see, you've never seen one. You had to look. Just the cover. So I don't know. So, so that concludes our sports edition yeah. for Honesty, but we're not done yet. We're not done yet. Oh, no, we may have something resembling good news out of, of all places, Texas. Well, because we're pretty hard on Texas. We are hard on Texas, yeah. and for good reason, because Texas is hard on us. Yeah. Anyway, the hate crime law in Texas, which right now covers race, religion, color, sex, disability, sexual orientation, age, and national origin, may now be amended to include gender identity. So I just want to pause for a second and point out, I was actually surprised that Texas had a hate crimes law that included sexual orientation. I was too. That was the James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Act of 2001. So, like, it's been around too. A while. Yeah. So, hate crimes laws typically allow trial courts to 
provide enhancement penalties for crimes that are motivated by the victim's real or perceived race, religion, color, sex, you know, whatever the categories are that you recognize. And this is actually important for finding people guilty right. because intent and motivation is always very important right. in criminal law. Well, and, and I'm not saying this is specifically true of Texas, but the past two years, hate crimes have been up everywhere. Yeah, because, we've been talking about that. Yeah, because the environment for acting out on your worst instincts is sort of getting a big pat on the back and go ahead. If yeah. You, you know, so that's that's and a tragedy. There are a couple of high-profile hate crimes mm -hmm. that happened against trans people in Texas this year that have brought a lot of attention to this new bill. And first of all, apparently 1.4 million trans people are in Texas. Which there... is an astonishing number. Boy, you guys are fighting the good fight. That's all I can say. And a woman was recently shot three times at point-blank range at a gas station. And in then... Houston. In Houston. And then most notably, a 23-year-old trans woman named Malaysia Booker was beaten up at her apartment complex in mid-daylight in Houston while dozens of people just watched and recorded it on their phones and piled on. It's the Kitty Genovese story all over again. Oh, you love that story. And, and apparently it's not actually as true as we thought it was when we were growing up. But that's not the point of this no, discussion. <laughs> but, Sorry, digression. But one person in the video offered someone $200 to beat her, which he did. Then the video has also captured transphobic language, but it can't be prosecuted as a hate crime without appealing to the FBI around the federal statute. I mean, it's a big, oh, good Lord. huge thing to do that. And But it was so obviously a hate crime. And what precipitated it ostensibly was mm -hmm. that she, as she was backing out, she backed into a neighbor's car. That was it. You know, you don't expect to be beaten by a bunch of people for tapping your neighbor's car. This was one of the things that people have been right. talking about in there. So and I was also fascinated by the congressperson that has brought this bill, Representative Garnett Coleman, who appears to be a straight, cisgendered, mm -hmm. African-American man. He's been working for 12 years to get gender identity and gender expression added to the hate crimes law in that state. Does it surprise you he's a Democrat? No. No. But this is what allyship is. Right. And so, I mean, this has been one of his basic things. And he said, kind of, obviously, people have a better understanding of transgender Texans than before. Mm. And boy, that is not because of Republican Texans. That's no, because sure. all the co-authors are also Democrats. Democrats. Yeah. No. And this is because trans people have been fighting like crazy in Texas to bring attention to their lives. I feel like we're going to jinx it by talking about but it before it, it's a done deal. Apparently, it's in committee right now, mm -hmm. and people seem to think it actually has a much better chance of passing than the previous 12 years that this has been coming up. But one of the things in this story that I noted was Malaysia Booker's grandma said that people need to learn to be more accepting of others. And I was struck by the fact that she said that she had a hard time accepting her trans granddaughter's identity. But through her faith in God, she learned to love her. So I'm sorry, that's like, okay. that's what you should be doing if you are right. calling yourself a good Christian. Um, she said, people don't have the right to judge others and you can't make a person be what you want them to be. And I don't want to change Malaysia. I love each one of my grandkids for who they are. So I want to just like give Malaysia Booker's grandmother a shout out for that. So if this comes to pass, and here's something I don't say very often, good on you, Texas. Yeah, good on you, Texas. We'll keep our eyes on this one. So that is our honesty for this week, sports and all. <laughs> sports. Abby, where's Wayne? I'm never sure. But on April 7th, he was on the red carpet for the opening of the Los Angeles LGBT Center's Anita May Rosenstein Campus. 
After more than a decade of dreaming, planning, and building, and in time for the 50th anniversary, today the Los Angeles LGBT Center is opening the doors of the beautiful Anita Mae Rosenstein campus. And I'm standing on the rainbow carpet with Lori Jean, the center's chief executive officer. 50 years of the center, what does that mean? It's been 50 years of hard work, 50 years of fortitude and resilience, often struggle, but we have persevered and look at us now. In our 50th anniversary year, we've opened up the most amazing campus that exists anywhere in the world. And what would the founders think of this? I think our founders would be blown away. When they were starting to provide services in 1969, uh, they were among our movement's first visionaries, but nobody could have imagined something like this. Even today, many people can't imagine this. They, all over the world, are watching this. They're in awe. They thought this was an audacious goal. And as we began to raise tens of millions of dollars, they were blown away by that. And then the concept of youth and seniors in one location is so inspirational that what I hope will happen is that people around the world will have the courage to dream and achieve more than they ever thought was possible because that's what we've done here. Do you ever sit back and think, I'm blown away with myself? <laughs> I have enormous pride about my role in this and gratitude to everybody who's helped make it possible. They make me look good. <laughs> How do you think the youth and the elders will come together because they'll be sharing this campus? It's going to be such a wonderful relationship because a lot of these young people, their families have abandoned them because of their sexual orientation or their gender identity. Now they're going to have relationships with seniors who have experienced similar things in life. And the seniors, they're four times more likely than their straight counterparts to live alone. Many of them don't have children, most in fact. Now they'll get to have a relationship with the younger generation and they have a lot to teach each other. What would be your message for the youth of today? My message for the young people would be to take a look at this campus. It is beyond what anybody could have imagined was possible and yet we set our sights on it and did it. They can do that with their own lives. This new facility is an intergenerational space, boasting affordable housing for seniors, beds for homeless gay kids, a senior community center, and a youth academy. Give us your names. Chris Leong. Dominic Leong. Leong Leong Architecture. Designing architects of the building. What was your vision when going into the project? Our vision was really to create a mosaic of identities that embrace the kind of diverse spectrum that's part of the LGBT community. And it's a really unique project because it combines intergenerational living and youth center and really the combination of all of these types of living and social services was kind of amazing opportunity to create a safe space but also a space that was a kind of civic presence for the LGBT community and inviting the city in but also protecting uh, those who need care. And it was just a really incredible project to be a part of and very collaborative project with the center killer for flamang architects and just a very kind of collaborative effort and it was just a once in a lifetime opportunity to be able to contribute to this and because it's a shared space how do you think it'll bring the elders together with the youth and sharing ideas and creating the future i mean i think it's in, in a lot of ways when we started the project it was sort of talked about as a utopian project and i think the, the it's the first intergenerational campus for the LGBT community of this scale and I think really what you know we're standing behind is a urban plaza that's connecting it and we're standing within this flex space and I think these are two of the core spaces where everyone within the community the LGBT community who's using the service of the building can come here but also for the community at large in the city of Los Angeles so I think we really try to design it around a kind of urban gesture that really opens up to the city.
Do you think this will create a blueprint for the rest of the world? I mean, I hope so. I mean, I think there's a you know housing crisis that we really need to address, and this project is one step in the right direction. So we, yeah, in, in a lot of ways, we hope this is a catalyst for ways to think about the equitable future of the city. I'm Bex Taylor Klaus, and you might know me from Dumplin. 50 years of the LGBT Center. How exciting is it to see this groundbreaking venue? God, it's so freaking cool. I was swinging on the scaffolding out front at Trans Pride last year, and now I'm looking at the finished product, and it's so bright and so shiny and so new and so exciting because of everything that not only it is, but everything it means for the future. What do you think it means to homeless youth? A safe space, hope that if their own cities aren't picking up the slack, at least they have a bet in LA. And if they can just get here, there's some place that they know they'll be safe. And what do you think it means to elders who feel abandoned? Oh my God, it means so much. Because yes, youth LGBT homelessness is statistically staggering, but we don't even start to talk about the elder LGBT homelessness. And so the fact that someone's talking about that and has some place for them specifically, that's got to feel unparalleled, you know? Just like that's, that's something they've never had before. They have not been forgotten, and now they know that. They know that they're safe. What do you think will be the benefit of having elderly people and young people together in one campus? Everybody gets to learn from everybody else. I mean, there's so many things that young people can teach older people and so many things that older people can teach younger people, especially in the LGBT community. None of us would be where we are. None of the youth would be where we are if it weren't for the older generation. And I think it's really important to have them mixed so that everybody can really, really solidify that knowledge. Going forward, what is your hopes for the future for the center and for LGBT people? Wow, so many hopes. So many hopes and dreams for this place and for this community. And every single one of them feels like they're coming true right in front of my eyes every single day. I don't even know where to start. And how do you use your platforms to help visibility? I'm queer, trans, gender queer, non-binary. I just want people to know that they're represented and they're respected and accepted. As we're standing across the street from the LGBT Center's Lily Tomlin and Jane Wagner Cultural Arts Center, it's appropriate that Lily Tomlin has the last word. What does this mean for the youth who feel alone and the elders who feel abandoned? Oh, it's incredible. This is like a place where kids are welcomed. They're made to feel good about themselves. They're, they're given the tools and the support to pull themselves out and grow, and they get housing, and they get schooling, they get medical care. Then at the village, that's where all the that's sort of like a fun place where groups meet, all kinds of groups meet and support groups and plays and gallery, and a tech lab, a computer lab. It's a it's a rich, rich community to be a part of. On the rainbow carpet at the Los Angeles LGBT Center's Anita May Rosenstein Campus in Hollywood. This is Wayne Sampson for IMRU. After the break, we remember Joan Crawford with her daughter, Christina. And we ask Florian Klein, sometimes known as Hans Berlin, adult performer turned musical librettist, what's your story? Stick around. We'll be right back. Walt Whitman's Chance Encounter, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. In 1865, poet Walt Whitman found himself in uncharacteristically high spirits. He had recently formed a long-term attachment. It all began on a cold winter night. With a blanket around his shoulders, he stepped aboard a horse car bound for his home in Washington, D.C. The red-haired conductor was a man named Peter Doyle. Doyle later described that special night, saying, It was a lonely night, 
So I thought I would go in and talk with him. Something in me made me do it, and something in him drew me that way. He used to say there was something in me that had the same effect on him. Anyway, I went into the car. We were familiar at once. I put my hand on his knee. We both understood. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Alan Brown. Hello, I am Patricia Velasquez, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974, on KPFK-FM, 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake, 93.7 San Diego, or streaming online at kpfk.org. Hola, soy Patricia Velázquez y estás escuchando IMRU Radio Magazine, Out Front y Out Loud desde 1974, en KPFK FM, 90.7 Los Ángeles, 98.7 Santa Bárbara, 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake, 93.7 San Diego. También lo puedes escuchar en línea en kpfk.org. Welcome back. I'm Abby Dees. I'm Wenzel Jones, and you're listening to IMRU Radio. The book Mommy Dearest was published in 1978, and Steve Pride sat down for coffee with Christina Crawford back in 2003 to talk about the book's 25th anniversary and her lingering mommy issues. Joan Crawford was one of the biggest stars of Hollywood films in the 1930s and 40s. She often played tough, independent women, and her screen presence and characterizations attracted a movie-going audience that included a significant number of lesbians and gay men. Recently, I met with her daughter, Christina Crawford, to talk about her childhood and the release of the 25th anniversary edition of her book, Mommy Dearest. The major part that was left out of the 78 edition were the years of my adult relationship with my adopted mother. When we were both in New York, I was an actress. She, of course, had been an actress. My career was on the ascendancy. Her career was non-existent. However, it's not her adult relationship with Joan Crawford, but her childhood memories that have haunted our collective nightmares since the original version of Mommy Dearest was first published in 1978. And although until now the book has been out of print for 10 years, the film version with Faye Dunaway was always around as a reminder of her traumatic youth. Well, my brother and I called them night raids because it was like a terrorist attack. And we never knew what caused it. We didn't know how to anticipate it. Well, there wasn't anything we could do anyway uh, because we were basically captive. So we became this little survival team like seals, you know. And, and, but we could do nothing uh, against what happened when she went into her rages. No war! Hang on! What's wire hangers doing in this closet when I told you no wire hangers ever? Work and work till I'm half dead, and I hear people saying she's getting old. 
What do I get? A daughter! Who cares as much about the beautiful dresses I give her? And she cares about me! What's why I am doing in this closet? Answer me! The wire hanger night was only one of, of many. Very often she would come and rip the bed, the covers off of us, haul us out of bed, me, because he was tied in. She'd haul me out of bed and make me do some Herculean feat of cleaning in the middle of the night in the pitch black. And then she'd make a terrible mess and leave me, and, sometime, and I'd just be crying and sweating and crying and pleading with God to let me live to grow up. And, and, uh, but one time, it didn't have anything to do with my brother or me. She got everybody in the house up in the middle of the night, and it happened to be a, quite a full moon, I remember, so we could see even though there were no lights on. And we had a beautiful, beautiful rose garden that the man that worked as a gardener for us really uh, it was a labor of love, gorgeous, beautiful roses. And she was in a terrible rage, and maybe a castration rage now that I think about it as an adult. And she cut down all these beautiful rose bushes. I mean, they were huge. Tina! Bring me the axe! And she made us cart them off with no gloves, no sleeves, so we were all bloody and bleeding. It was disgusting. And she got the servants up to do this, too, so we knew it didn't have anything to do with us. And then, to our absolute horror, uh, she cut down an orange tree. And it was like, after she did that, it, it like took the steam out of her and she went to sleep. It was, as a child, it was a very terrifying experience because tonight the roses, tomorrow night maybe me. Joan Crawford's most famous role was Mildred Pierce, the story of a mother so full of love that she sacrifices everything for her selfish, ungrateful daughter. You've been snooping around ever since I got this job trying to find out what it is. And now you know. You know, don't you? Know what? Know what, Mother? You knew when you gave that uniform to Lottie that it was mine, didn't you? Your uniform? Yes, I'm waiting tables in a downtown restaurant. My mother, a waitress. I took the only job I could get so you and your sister could eat and have a place to sleep and some clothes on your backs. The irony is not lost on Christina Crawford. You know, the very interesting thing is, after she played Mildred Pierce in the movie... She adopted the language of Mildred Pierce, but not the behavior of Mildred Pierce, with me for years and years and years. She would always say how ungrateful I was. Well, there was nothing to be grateful for. Mommy Dearest sold millions of copies in its original printing, and the film has become a cult classic. But Christina believes that the longer story she tells in this new edition has an important message of its own. Until next time, this is Steve Pride.
Well, we certainly hope you had a better Mother's Day than Christina. Our next guest, Florian Klein, a.k.a. Hans Berlin, is both an iconic gay adult film performer and the producer and writer of a new musical opening in Hollywood called, appropriately, Shooting Star. So, Florian Klein, what's your story? Um, hi, I'm Florian <laughs> Klein. I'm here to promote my show, a musical love story set in the world of gay porn. And this is semi-autobiographical, somewhat autobiographical, or just totally out of your own? Uh, it is very semi-autobiographical. By the way, I'm originally from Germany, so excuse the sometimes when I sound a little bit like the ex-governator. That's what we love. <laughs> oh, no, that, that goes over well in California, okay, that's if you good, haven't that's noticed. Because yeah. I actually lived here when uh, Arnold was, uh, I wanted to say president, no, we haven't gotten that far yet, uh, when he was governor. So Shooting Star is based a lot on, on my own experiences. The major difference is that I'm going to be 47 this year, and my protagonist is in his early 20s, because mm -hmm. I also wanted to make it a coming-of-age story. But besides that, it is it is based on my own experiences. I lived in L.A. from 2006 to 2013, and I was trying to make it as an actor. I wanted to become the German Brad Pitt. Um, I went to acting school in New York after working in the entertainment industry in Germany before, and after finished a program in New York, as I said, came to LA. I did a lot of catering. I did some auditioning. I booked some parts. I had to play the Nazi twice. Of course, that's the with the German. Um, I was a I was a English butler on Joan and Melissa. Joan knows best the oh, yeah, Joan yeah, Rivers yeah. show, because actually she was one of my catering clients and uh, and Melissa as well. And then for that for one of the episodes uh, when Perez Hilton came for tea, mm -hmm. I was the British. Butler. So far, this sounds like the standard actor in Hollywood story with the catering, the small parts. How did you make the leap into, as they say, adult performing? You did not want to say the P word. Porn. Okay, porn. <laughs> right. Well, because after after uh, a few years of catering, where I was working for the stars, I think the universe always got me wrong. I wanted to work with the stars. So at some point, I was fed up, and I hooked up with a couple that was dancing at Mickey's in West Hollywood. Mm -hmm. um, and they said, uh, you can make a lot of money as a dancer. And I've only known, like, go-go dancing from tipping guys. Right. The first time, actually, that i ever seen American go-go dancing, because we don't have that in Germany, was the movie Trick, if you remember that. That. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that was the first time. So I thought, okay, why not? If somebody wants to see me in my underwear, because as I said, I was already in my late 30s at that time. I was like, okay, if somebody wants to see me in my underwear. So I started go-go dancing and it became at Mickey's at first. And then I was dancing all over um, LA. And then I was dancing in San Francisco in North in uh, New Orleans. And what I didn't know is that a lot of these guys that I was dancing with, they were in porn. So I remember I was dancing at, at Fault Line once and I looked at the screen and they were showing porn there. I was like, wait, this is you up there in porn. <laughs> and uh, at that time, because I said it was around 2010, 2011, that's when a lot of porn was still shot in L.A. There were recruiters and someone asked me and exactly like in my show, do you want to do porn like you're hot? And I said, no, I'm an actor. I can't do that. Well, now, L.A. has a reputation for being very youth obsessed. And I would think gay porn would even be more youth obsessed. And yet you were already in your 30s when you started? In my late 30s. It was like it was in 2012 when I finally then gave in and realized I don't have an acting career that I can destroy. Um, yeah. And that was like shortly before I turned 40. I did not think you had crossed the great 40 Rubicon <laughs> looking at you. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe the porn business keeps you young. <laughs> yes, it does. I mean, so do you go straight into daddy roles? Or, I um, mean, that is such a, an awkward age. I still call myself an uncle. 
Like I don't see myself as a, as a daddy yet, but H Y Z S. But that is the nice thing about the internet is uh, a lot of people always say like internet kills porn, it kills the industry. Uh, but on the other hand, it also it also creates platforms for every kind of fetish that that is out there, and the the daddy fetish is definitely a thing. So I'm shooting more and more daddy scenes now because I'm still in the industry, so I'm writing about the industry or wrote about the industry and presenting this musical about the industry. But I'm still part of the industry. I feel like nowadays you can actually do porn as long as you want to, as long as there's an audience. Is there an audience for everything? Uh, I think so. I believe so. Which I think is, on on, on the other hand, really great. Because when I started watching gay porn, it was all Falcon. I love those Falcon movies, but they all look the same. And I feel like now with the internet, you have alternative dudes. You have the daddies. You have the bears. You have the hairy ones. So the otters. I'm not so much in the foot fetish, but I shot a couple of foot fetish scenes. And what I also thought was very interesting was tickling. Like you get Ooh. you get suspended. Uh, right? Suspended? Right. Yeah. Uh, and then they tickle you and it's it's a little bit like about domination so very interesting and not fun i'm sorry but that's a whole conversation i realized that i tickling. was not that, i realized that i'm actually not that ticklish oh, so maybe so, you're good for this then well you, that's what the acting that's where four years of acting training came <laughs> in and i had to pretend like yeah i am ticklish and this is really painful <laughs> I've completely forgotten the question. Because you know, the, tickling, is, the tickling, the tickling totally threw you off. And the tickling is not part of the shooting star, but we're going to learn, we're going to spill some beans about the porn industry, what happens behind uh, behind the cameras, and uh, we focus on the, on the people of the adult film world, because that was one of the things that was important for me when I started doing porn. I had the same misconception that I have to have sex with everyone. We're all on drugs and it's just a, a big f fest. Sorry, I said the F word. Oh, we can, we can bleep you. Out. Oh, yes. And then I started shooting porn and all of a sudden I was like, wow, this is this is like a Hollywood film set. I'm there. I'm signing my paperwork. Time is money. Um, the quicker you work, the quicker the, the product is done. You're not here to have fun. You're really here to have uh, to work. And the more disciplined you are, the easier to, you're to work with, the more bookings you get. I shot my first scene in July 2012. It's now 2019. So I've been working in the adult film industry for seven years now. The play, the musical, yeah. Shooting Star, you really wanted to feature these people that people don't think about and don't see. So without giving too much away, give us an example of one of those stories or one of those people that well, we don't know about. Yeah. Well, one of the characters is based on Mr. Pam. And Mr. Pam, a real woman, she is a real uh, life director. And when she started uh, working for Falcon, they didn't want the gay audience to know that a woman was editing their mm. porn. So they put a Mr. in front of her name, Pam, and everybody thought she looked like Bruce Lee. <laughs> <laughs> and so, clearly there is a huge female audience right, for gay porn. That, that too. But is that for the gays at that at that time? Like they didn't want to make it known that it was a woman. So Mr. Pam, they, everybody thought she was she was a man. And one of the characters, Mr. Sue, is obviously uh, based on her. Mr. Pam is, is a Caucasian woman. We, we cast Carol, an African-American woman. But the great thing about Mr. Pam is she's a porn director. She now does a lot of social media. So if you if you Google her, like she's all over the place, Um hosting award shows, but she's also the gay porn mama hen, like she's the mother hen of all of her little babies. And that's also her in the in the show. She's also the hostess of the Black Rooster, a fictional LA club where all the porn stars and their admirers hang out. And that's where Taylor starts dancing. Taylor's and the star. Taylor's the star, my alter ego. I call him mini me because I said he is yeah over 20 years younger than I am. 
Now, I, I have seen more than a few projects where uh, an adult film star is on the stage, and generally it's an excuse to get the film star out of their clothes within the first 10 minutes so people can say, yes, I saw it live. What made you decide to be behind the scenes but without actually being on the stage yourself? Because for me, it was really the human aspect. I wanted to humanify. Is that a word? Humanify? No. Yeah, humanize. Humanize, that's the word. I like humanify. It works. <laughs> humanize. I've been saying that word so often that I totally forgot about it. To humanize the adult film industry. So really to focus on these, on the performers and to remind people that these are real people uh, in front of the camera and even also behind the camera who also see this as a job. And the main thing is even... Uh, though we have the, the Me Too movement and uh, some politicians that had some um, outer marital, marital, how do you say that? Marital, extramarital. Yeah, extramarital uh, affairs. Still, if you work as a sex worker, there's a lot of judgment from society and, and people think as that we're bad people. Uh, we're we're, we're sex-craved zombies. We all have a drug addiction. And a lot of people always see us as victims that we didn't have a choice. I had a choice. I chose to do this. I chose to get into the industry because I saw that it is not as bad as I thought it would be. And I wanted to become successful. I wanted to become a star. And I became a star in a different universe. Well, do you think, though, that your experience was more positive because you got into it as an adult and you knew what you wanted? Whereas if you'd gone in at, say, the age of 19, you might have had wild misconceptions about what was possible. Very true. And we also, because uh, Shooting Star is not a commercial about, hey, porn is great and there are no no problems. Um, I have the younger kid who got into the porn industry too early and he has a drug problem. In the show, his name is JR. But then again, if you look at the in, in the music industry, if you look to Hollywood, isn't it the same thing? I mean, look what Whitney Houston, an artist that achieved everything that I always wanted to achieve as an artist. And while I was still following my acting dream, she drowned in a bathtub while I was catering a Grammy party. And then Michael Jackson passed away with the same thing. He got into the industry, into the mainstream industry too early. I want to take away from that, oh, the porn industry. It's like there's suicides and you get into the industry too early and, and it, it might screw you up. I want to get away from that with the show. So the show has not opened yet. No, it's... we opened May 25th. Okay. Yes. And, we, yes. and we're going to come back to all the 411. But have people in your business come to see it or share this? And I'm just wondering what their response is. So we, we had two presentations in October of last year also to get to get the funding because I did not just write it. I'm also the executive producer. Like I got all the funding for the show together because some producers were a little scared. So I invited people from the industry and the CEO of Falcon came. Tim Valenti, he loved it. Uh, he's one of our biggest sponsors for the show. And one of my, my most beautiful moment was that Mr. Pam was there to meet Mr. Sue and she was there and she cried her eyes out. Shooting Star takes you on a ride as one of our patrons said, it takes you on a ride from innocence to curiosity to heartbreak, death and a hopeful future. So you go on this roller coaster. So it's a ride. musical. Yes, so it's a musical, yes. But it's not a campy and corny porn musical where you see dancing dildos. We show you a lot of heart. And we focus on the love because ultimately it's a love story set in the world of gay porn. I also don't want to call it a gay love story. It's a love story because love is love. But why a musical at all? Uh, I'm gay. 
<laughs> so I thought musical would be an amazing platform because I don't know. Sometimes I want to stop in my everyday life and just break out into song. And musicals are giving you the chance to do that. This is Abby Dees. And we're talking with Florian Klein, a.k.a. adult film star Hans Berlin. You also are very committed to doing awareness work around HIV and yeah. uh, sexually transmitted diseases and infections. Talk a bit about that. Porn for me has been one of the best decisions that I've ever made. As I said, I never wanted to go to porn because of the judgment. It took me several years to tell my parents. My parents are, are okay with it. They love me the way that, that I am. Porn also gave me a voice to talk about my own HIV infection. People always say, like, did you get it when you were doing porn? It's like, no, no. So I contracted HIV in 2000. One And um, it was definitely something that was there. Like, I was never sick. I never had AIDS. But it, it definitely it confronts you with, your, with your mortality. So on one hand, the way the person that I am today is thanks to HIV, thanks to contracting the virus, because I live my life more extreme, but extreme that you really utilize this time that we have, because then you realize we only have a limited amount of time on this planet. On the other hand, I had a problem with it. I didn't have a relationship for a long time. I thought maybe it was unlovable because of that. And uh, in the last few years, thanks to PrEP, thanks to the knowledge of U equals U, undetectable equals untransmittable, so that someone like me can't give the virus to anyone anymore because uh, thanks to my medication, there's so very little virus left in my blood. Thanks to my friend Bruce Richmond, who started the U equals U campaign, the prevention access campaign. The CDC also put it on their website. If you go on Grindr and it says uh, undetectable, what does it mean? Grinder also tells you there's no transmission. So porn gave me a voice to uh, talk about that, to be part of HIV activism. In 2014, when I told my parents about my porn world, I also told them for the first time that I was HIV positive. I think I had the good son syndrome. So I kept it from my parents for 13 years because I didn't want them to worry. And when I told them, my mom said, gosh, this is always a very emotional uh, part. My mom said she was just sad that I did not believe in the family. And my dad said, we, we love you. And, and no matter what, like even with the porn, it's like nothing changed. And I realized, as someone said, just by speaking the truth, you help other people. Because when I started talking about it and was more open about my own HIV infection, people were listening and said, like, you know, there's only like one or two people who know about my HIV infections. I wish I wish I was like you. And I, I felt like I can become a role model and do something that I always wanted to do is change the world. And Scientology, unfortunately, picked it up. But they said change one life, change the world. But that's my, my mission. And I, I've been working in Germany a lot with the I Know What I Do campaign for the German AIDS Foundation. I'm the role model for U equals U slash uh, treatment as prevention. And uh, I do speeches in Germany. Of course, they always say the porn star comes to town and he's going to spill some beans about porn. Um, but then as that, I talk about my HIV infection and, and how I dealt with it. And also with porn, the more open I am about something, the less people talk behind my back. Like the when I had a problem with my HIV infection, other people had problems with that. Mm -hmm. And well, it seems like shame is what gives it the power. Yeah. And once you lose that shame, it has no power over yeah. you anymore. Yeah. And as I said, I'm not ashamed that I do porn. Of course, like sometimes I go out and 
And do you think, do they see me uh, or do they see the porn star? Dating for me has been difficult, but I don't know why. For some people, it just doesn't happen to find that significant other. I'm currently married to my to my musical because I'm, I'm saying this because Taylor, my, my protagonist, he is looking for love. He falls in love with his first scene partner. And it also shows how difficult it can be when you're in the porn world and, and you want to date because you have constantly sex with other people. As I said, I don't want to give too much away, but that's what makes it a love story. And uh, there's there's one song which is a little bit uh, autobiographical as well in the show is where Taylor sings, uh, I always end up alone, where's the love and all the lovers I've known? So with everyone that he had sex with, they wish there was a connection. And, and he says like, would have been nice if the other guy would have given me some more, but was I willing to give more? And I feel like Shooting Star, even though it takes place in the porn world, even though our lovers are two men, it deals with so many subject matters that a general audience can relate to. So is this the beginning of a new chapter in your career? I mean, do you see, oh, chapter two, I gonna bring in more dancers well as i said i always wanted to be an actor i always wanted to act in a musical and now i have all of these amazing professional actors who sing beautifully and i'm super okay with just sitting in the background and watching the audience and see how they react to it so yes i i think i still have that gay boy thing in me where i finally want to find something that tells me i'm good and i've achieved something in my life and i think that or it looks like that writing is really the one thing that I'm good at, that I'm really good at. What is it like to have in your mind the notion, I want to do a musical when you're not writing the music, though? Because it's so intrinsic and yet so, so important. How do you find the music to go with your vision? I was uh, a composer shopping, more or less, and I talked to people about this project. And that's also one of the things, as a modern-day immigrant, I love my country, I love Germany. But what I love about here in the United States, especially New York and L.A., you have a crazy idea. You always find people that say, oh, that sounds good. Like, work, work on it. The Germans are like, no, don't do it. You're going to fail. You're going to waste a lot of money. You're going to fail. And if you fail, then I'm going to say, I told you so. So here I met amazing people. I met composers that said, like, I want to write some music for it. I didn't find the right composer. And then I had one of my first readings actually in Berlin, Germany. And I found a German. I found Thomas Zaufke, who was in the audience when I had my first public reading in uh, February of 2015. And Thomas is a well-known German composer. He was in the audience. I got to say, at first, I was a little cocky. I was like, no, you know, I'm going to go back to New York and I want to have a Broadway composer. And then he wrote the first song, which is now called Those Golden Days, that my older porn star, James Grant, sings about the good old days of porn because his career is done. It's going down the drain. It's his Norma Desmond moment, as I call it. And Thomas wrote the the music to that. And I was like, wow, yeah, I want you to be my composer. I'm super happy that I chose him. So, so at that first reading in Berlin, you actually would read, 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 and then say, and then the song goes. Right. Here? Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, I did write all the lyrics um, myself. Like, I took uh, songs that already existed and wrote new lyrics to that and was hoping that I'm uh, a genius and I'm going to find a composer who's just going to write new mu- music to, to those lyrics that I had already written without me telling him what I wrote the song, like what the original song was. And Thomas said, you know, this is one of the things because he added it in syllable here and it just doesn't work. Like, you should get a professional lyricist. So, 2015, I went 
back to uh, New York and I found Eric Ransom, who's very successful also with his own musicals. He just won Best of West End Musical in London for Grinder the Opera. Oh. Yes. And uh, he came in as the lyricist and uh, he looked at uh, the lyrics that I had already written and rewrote them and kept the concepts that I had. And it all became an amazing collaboration. Like, I don't know if I can say that, but I call him the, the lyric Nazi because mm -hmm. he's he's so perfect. Like everything rhymes perfectly because I did a couple of pop rhymes. And it's like, hello, is it me you're looking for? <laughs> yeah. So I realized I can't do everything by myself. Musical theater, theater is a collaboration of many, many, many people. Also Michael Bello, my director, who was also assistant directing uh, Donna Summer, a musical. Right. I have Jim Cooney with me, our choreographer. And I went to rehearsals yesterday. We had a first run through for all the designers, sound designer, costume designer. And I saw it and I was like, wow, this came out of my head. We actually have a real musical. It's dancing and singing and... This wonderful group of people, mm -hmm. did the actors or the people that showed up sort of think, wait, a porn star is in charge of this? I mean, did, did you see them have to go through a process of taking this project seriously and buying in? Once again, I have to say, I think that's one of the differences between Germany and uh, the U.S. is that here I feel people see... Florian worked so hard to get this on stage, to put this together. Um, he's also investing all the, the money, getting investors. I never had once the feeling that they did not have respect and, and that they treated me different. One of my actresses said, oh, you know, I did a lot of research uh, on you. Like, you look much cuter in person. She was the only one of all my actors who actually said they that she was watching researched. my porn, but they probably yeah. They all, all researched. I just want to say, but I feel we like, did. But I feel... <laughs> I love my country. I really love my country. But in Germany, I feel sometimes it's like, oh, you did not learn how to write a musical. Why do you think now you can be the producer and the writer, creator of a musical? So as I said, it's it's different here. And I have this amazing team and they listen to me and it's beautiful. This almost sounds like it's going to become your second musical. Struggling actor comes to L.A., goes through the porn industry and becomes a Hollywood producer. <laughs> and I mean, then the musical story about alone. that. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that story alone is amazing. I remember uh, when I was living here, I had never thought that I'm going to be writing a musical and that I'm going to be doing radio interviews and, and people are interested. And Ra Raquel Lerman of the Theater Plan is my producer and general manager. She said, we're selling so many tickets al already. So I think it shows you once again, you never know where life is going to go. And if you're open to possibilities, then uh, life can be an amazing adventure. So what if people need to know? Right. The specifics here. So we're going to open at the Hudson Theater on Hollywood's nice little theater lane, May 25th. And we're going to run until June 30th. We have two previews on May 23rd and May 24th. And then we're going to run Friday, Saturday and Sunday, Friday, Saturday at 8 p.m., Sunday at 3 p.m. And you can get the ticket at www.onstage411.com slash star. Well, thank you so much for coming by and talking to us. And I wonder, do you have any words of advice for the struggling young performer out there in Hollywood today? Who or was not once young. You were... <laughs> right, yeah. or not. Or not, not young. Believe in yourself, and there's nothing wrong when you pivot your dreams. Or with pivoting your dreams. No, well, I like nothing wrong when you pivot your dreams. Yeah. I like it. Florian Klein, a.k.a. Hans Berlin, thanks so much. Okay, that's it for tonight. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and our tireless director of podcast distribution, Vash Bodhi. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio.
If you're interested in volunteering with IMRU to help make the magic happen, email volunteer at imruradio.org. Also, catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Radio Public, Stitcher, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Good night. Good night.